I think the history of women's cricket is only now starting to be told. Girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. On going through the six boxes of stuff which had been sitting in storage for years, the original 1934-35 scorebook was in amongst all these records. We couldn't always guarantee sponsorship because we were never in the limelight. I know it, it took all the money I could put my hands on to get there. When Elise Perry hit the ball over the boundary, I just went, oh my goodness. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. Hello and welcome to episode three of The Maiden Summer, the hidden story behind the evolution of Australian women's cricket. I'm Nick Richardson. In this episode, we reach a new pinnacle for the women's game with Australia's first test series against England. It's only two years after England's Ashes triumph in the bitter bodyline series. There's anxiety and debate about what it all means for the women's tour and how Australian cricket fans will react to this team of English cricketers. We trace the growing impact of reporting on women's sport, particularly writing about women's cricket and the important role women journalists play in promoting the game as it reaches its peak. And we hear from some of the players who took part in what was women's cricket's maiden summer. Their high expectation, their bold ambitions and the confronting reality of international competition. But first, let's go back to that fraught summer of 1932-1933 when the English men's team arrived in Australia with a plan to win back the Ashes. The plan is built on the premise of stopping one player, Donald Bradman, and his extraordinary run scoring that had been at the heart of the Australian victories in England in 1930. England has one of cricket's finest and fastest bowlers, Harold Larwood, to propel short pitch deliveries at the batsman's body while a leg-side field full of expectant catches surrounds him. Larwood is the fastest bowler in the world. He also has the gift of sustained accuracy. It's a lethal combination. And it presents a brutal choice for Bradman and all the other Australian batsmen. To hit or be hit. The drama reaches its peak in the third test in Adelaide when the Australian captain Bill Woodfall is hit over the heart and Australian wicketkeeper Bert Oldfield edges a ball onto his head. His skull is fractured. The crowd of 50,000 is raucous and incensed. There are fears that if one person jumps the fence, thousands more will follow. Cable is sent from Australian cricket authorities to the MCC in London, claiming the English tactics are unsportsmanlike. It's a red rag to those back in England. And the MCC not only thinks Australia has overreacted, but there's even talk of cancelling the tour. A major dispute is narrowly averted and the series continues. And so do England on their merry way under the hawkish leadership of Douglas Jardine. England grabs the ashes 4-1. But the consequences are complex and challenging tied up with all the old imperial ties. The nature of the game of cricket, the romantic ideals of fairness and decency, and England's embrace of a tactic that seems at odds with its commitment to fair play. Perhaps its most interesting and largely unexplored impact is how Bodyline helps make a clear distinction between men's and women's cricket. And it doesn't take long to find out what women think of Bodyline. 
Pat Jarrett, our pioneering sports reporter at the Melbourne Herald, asks Victorian player Dot Debnam for her considered view. Victorian bowlers are too good at the orthodox methods to resort to packing the leg field. The girls in my team love the game too well as it has always been played to want to see it altered in any manner that might cast a reflection on the game. Women cricketers look up to the internationals and we're looking forward to what promised to be a wonderful season of cricket, but all these distressing accidents tend to mar the game from the feminine viewpoint. Still, I feel positive that it will all be overcome as players on both sides are far too good sportsmen to spoil the relationship that has existed. Dot's understanding of body line seems to be a common one among female cricketers. They have a deep affection for cricket, a reverence. They're really not at all interested in what looks like a win-at-all-costs attitude. At this time of crisis, women cricketers express their dislike of the aggressive tactic. Their game is most certainly not the men's game. Dot's view was expressed in a piece of poetry she published in 1933, just months after Body Line's sour summer. A sports girl's prayer. Teach me to love the game beyond the prize, that I may look at life through sports girl's eyes, and let me meet defeat with just the fun that I have known at times when I have won. Let not my kind friends spoil me with their praise, when I am foolish, show me better ways. If I cannot be champion in the test, let me be glad to know I did my best. Let me be ready friend to all the hosts around me. Let me not ever boast. Give me the courage to stand fast for truth and let me thrill with joy for health and youth. Then when my days for sport are at any end, give me the wisdom that years will send, that I may yet play up and play the game and still be worthy of a sports girl's name. There's no doubt that Dot's hanging firmly onto the notion of an idealised contest and it's a long way from the Adelaide Oval and 50,000 vocal Australians. Back in England, Marjorie Pollard and her Women's Cricket Association has little truck for body line either, although her position's carefully presented to suggest that female cricketers would neither think of such a tactic nor have the strength to bowl body line. There is no possibility of body line bowling being exploited by the English women's team. The field will be placed in such a way that there will not be the slightest suggestion that body line is being used. Anyway, leg theory is too clever for us and we haven't the super bowlers that this type of cricket demands. None of this amounts to any lack of interest among women cricketers in the Ashes contest itself. Far from it. They're fans as well as players. Nell McClarty, not far away from her Australian debut, is absorbed by every ball of the Ashes series. I never missed a game. <laughs> never missed a ball. <laughs> so tense when you were there and they'd be <coughs> screaming and yelling and then La would come on and he'd run and then you could hear a pin drop. I lived through all that. Oh, my word, I did. And none of the body line ruckus appears likely to jeopardise the proposed visit from the English women's team. The bigger risk is from the Australian Women's Cricket Council's impoverished coffers. What helps mitigate the cost of the tour is that each English woman has to pay their own way. Coupled with the time commitment of a six-month tour, it means that only those with the wherewithal and the time to spare can afford to commit to the tour. Betty Archdale is one of them. Eventually the invitation came and um, people were asked to send in the names of who, if you wanted to go. 
Uh, now, in contrast to what happens now in, in men's cricket, we had to pay our fares. Once we reached Australia and we went on to New Zealand, we were completely looked after by the local association. But we did have to have the money for our fares and we did have to be able to get off for it was about six months uh, from the job. Well, the fare in those days, it sounds very, very cheap, was only £90, round trip round the world. And I managed to scratch this together, and as I was still a student, I could take the six months off. So I sent my name in a hopeful way, and I was very lucky. I was A, chosen to play, to be one of the 16 of us, I think, when. But also, I think largely because I was just about to become a barrister. In fact, I no, I was a barrister by then. I'd been called to the bar. Uh, there was an assumption that I, I would therefore be able to cope with the public speaking, you know, and the public relations side of a tour. So as a very inexperienced cricket captain, I found myself captain of the first team that, uh, of women that, that left England. The long journey to Australia is the perfect way for the English women to bond. They are, by and large, pretty much all from the same social background. But nonetheless, the enforced time together helps forge friendships and hones their skills during regular onboard training sessions. There's no sense that what's happening here is the start of something grand, the first step in the women creating their own Ashes tradition. That doesn't take place for another 64 years. Instead, there is a sense of a shared and unspoken determination between the Australian and English teams to do something different to the men. Here's women's cricket historian Raf Nicholson explaining what's going on. Did the 1934-35 tour create kind of parity between the men's and the women's games? I would I would argue that the Women's Cricket Association deliberately aren't setting out to do that. And similarly, uh, the Australian Women's Cricket Council, um, they don't want their game to be viewed in the same way as the men's game, partly because this tour comes at a point in time when there has just been this kind of huge international incident with Bodyline um, and diplomatic relations between the English and the Australian men's um, cricketing authorities are probably strained, um, I would suggest. When the English team arrive in Australia, they deliberately say, we're not going to be bowling body line because of course they keep being asked about that. Um, and I do think that they are, yes, trying to, in a way, establish their own tradition and to deliberately um, do that at a time when things in the men's game aren't looking particularly rosy between England and Australia. In June 1933, a new publication hits the newsstands in Australia. It's the Australian Women's Weekly. What makes the magazine relevant to our story is that from the first edition, women's sport is a constant presence, in particular women's cricket. And a large part of that is the work of Ruth Preddy, who provides weekly news and results on cricket and other women's sport. Just like Pat Jarrett at the Melbourne Herald, Ruth's a sportswoman in her own right. Ruth makes her debut for New South Wales in 1910 but has to wait until 1930 to play a second game. She will become manager of the Australian Test side, as well as a selector for the series against England. What that all means is that readers of the Australian Women's Weekly are getting insight into women's sport from one of the most well-connected sportswomen in the country. Within weeks of the magazine's launch, Ruth is writing stories about the need for more appropriate dressing rooms for female cricketers, a plea to invest in improving grounds to provide decent playing surfaces, and a broader piece on the growing popularity of women's sport. But it's Pretty's cricket skills that get the most recognition when she becomes the first woman to have her name put on a cricket bat. 
It's September 1933, and in the summer to come, women cricketers around the country will be able to buy the Ruth Pretty Bat. It's made of willow, it's slightly lighter in weight and shorter in the handle than the men's. But nothing says that women's cricket has arrived and has its own profile than this. Ruth Pretty is autograph-worthy. Bear in mind that Ruth is a New South Wales cricketer. That's the extent of her profile. There's no national stage she can walk, no Australian cap. But it doesn't matter. Nelma Clarty doesn't have a bat with her name on it. In fact, her cricket career is a little more complicated. Nell's auntie, who you'll remember looks after her, doesn't like Nell going away at all, let alone going away to play sport. In my first year of cricket, I was picked to go away in the interstate team. I was picked in the hockey and he wouldn't let me go. I really wanted to go on this cricket trip. No, he wouldn't let me go. And the manager has calmed down. No, she was, wouldn't let me go. She wasn't be flexible. She made up a mind I wasn't going to go. And the youngest of her children, her seven children, was a son. And he I should be allowed to go, so I went. Nell is whip-thin and athletic. She's also tall for a woman of her era, 5 foot 10 or 178 centimetres. The sight of her running into bowl causes a stir. When I started the bowl, they hadn't seen a lady fast bowler and one of the men said, oh, she must eat raw meat before she comes out the plate. <laughs> and I don't even eat meat. In Queensland, another story is unfolding, one that has been overlaid and ignored for many years. Edna and May will crouch are first cousins, and they're both talented cricketers. They're from the Kwandamooka people of Minjeriba, or Stradbroke Island. It's an era when there are severe restrictions on Indigenous civil rights that can also limit sporting opportunities, especially for Indigenous women. But Edna and May will not only leap that hurdle, they also find a way to build a cricket career soon after Queensland women's cricket gets formally organised in 1929. Edna comes from a strong sporting background in the Wynnum district. Her brothers Robert and Glenn play rugby for the local team. Glenn's known as Paddy and he tours New Zealand in 1925 with the Queensland rugby league team. Edna's a slow left-arm bowler and she's selected to play for a state in the interstate competition against New South Wales and Victoria in February 1934. Her selection makes Edna the first Indigenous women's cricketer to represent not only Queensland, but any state. It's a rain-affected interstate tournament and the Queenslanders only play one day's cricket and New South Wales is too powerful. But there will be other opportunities for Edna Crouch and also for her cousin, Mabel. The deal was that although the English cricketers paid to get to and from Australia, all the expenses while they were here 
had to be paid for by the Australian Women's Cricket Council. The tourists are billeted, local clubs and associations volunteer their services, and they help absorb many of the costs. So that leaves the Cricket Council responsible for interstate travel, any ground costs, and of course publicity. It's further evidence that men and women might be playing the same game, but women are having to find ways to nourish and sustain their cricket. So for an organisation with only 14 shillings in the bank, the English tour means a lot of fundraising. Some estimate it will cost about £1,000 or about $135,000 in today's money. So fundraising matches are held involving some of the bigger names in women's cricket to help rattle some tins. In Victoria, dances are held. Some players knit and sell their work, a jumper, for example. Others sew. Another wraps almonds and sweets in attractive containers and sells those. And in Sydney, Margaret Peden's New South Wales Women's Cricket Association organises a review called Straight Hits. There's ballet, singing and an operetta entitled Shady Shakespeare. Kath Commons, a Sydney Morning Herald journalist and player at the Karingai Club, volunteers that her teammates' dancing contribution to the review will be last on the program. And why is that? So the audience can leave if it gets bored. It's not the only novel approach Margaret Peden takes to preparing for the arrival of the English tourists. Down in Sydney's Elizabeth Street, in the basement of the Salvation Army building, Margaret manages to organise what is Australia's first indoor cricket net. Even the Sydney Daily Telegraph calls it a marvel of organisation. There are two nets, one for fast bowling and one for slow. The place is well lit, and the pitches are on a concrete foundation overlaid with a tar compound and topped off with a matte surface developed by former Test cricketer Alan Fairfax. One of Australia's Test cricket legends, the man they call the Governor General, Charlie McCartney, officially opens the facility in August 1934, giving the women's game his endorsement on the way through. The indoor nets are another way of raising money. Clubs can hire the indoor facility for their own training. England under Betty Archdale has arrived in Australia and set up for the first game of the tour against Western Australia in Perth. The local papers are a little thrilled to have them here and there's a coded acknowledgement that this team won't be doing any of that body line. Strong and athletic looking, this happy band reached a land new to all of them with the object of popularising cricket among women and of playing the game according to traditions. Passengers on board the liner Cathay were obviously disappointed at the prospect of losing the company of this cheery team. And during the day at receptions and on the cricket field, the visitors made many friends, for their genial attitude towards cricket and country was at once refreshing. This tour, the first of its kind ever undertaken by women in the history of cricket, has aroused widespread interest. Pat Jarrett has been given the job of covering the tour for the Melbourne Herald. She boards the train for the westward journey. And I travelled on the train with, among other people, one uh, Frank Barrapier. And you were four days on the train. The train was fabulous, fantastic. And stop at these outway places. We stopped one day and everybody got out of the train to stretch their legs and there were some Aborigines who came along with their spears and they were throwing them into the desert and Frank Barrapier said to me, you can throw further than that, you're a javelin thrower. And he handed me this spear. When I threw it out into the desert, 
And these Aborigines were so fascinated, and with my blonde hair, they just came back rushing at me, and mostly wanting to touch my hair because it was so fair. And Frank Barrapier always laughed about that. He thought it was so funny that I'd, I'd sort of stopped the train by throwing the javelin out. He said, we never saw it again. It went so far out into the desert. Exaggeration, of course. However, that was the first time I went to the West and I covered that match against England and made a lot of friends. England's team is transfixed by what they see. Many are familiar with Europe, few of them with the delights of Down Under. We saw all over Australia. We started at Perth and you know, went right round up to Brisbane and quite a lot of inland places. I can remember Leeton, Daniloquin, Goulburn, Wollongong and Newcastle, of course, and, and one or two other places. So that we really did get, in, in a very short time, because it was all done by rail in those days, uh, we really did get a very good impression of what Australia was like, the size of it, you know, and, the, and the, the gum trees, and this was all so completely new. I can still remember the kick in Perth when we picked our first oranges. You see, somebody coming out from England, this was absolutely incredible, that you could walk up to an orange tree and pick an orange, you know. We nearly went mad. Uh, but this kind of thing was, I think, the most magnificent experience anyone could have had. The tour will become replete with social events and civic receptions. There's one in Adelaide that generates a big crowd, even though there's no game for the tourists in that city. These events give the tour an air of an international goodwill visit, except the cricket is played with firm resolve. In the opening match, England is too strong for a West Australian team representing a largely underdeveloped women's game in the Western State. But more importantly, there are 4,000 spectators over the two days. Gate receipts are over £226, and there's a sizeable profit. It's a good sign for the rest of the tour. The Englishwoman move on to Adelaide. Melbourne follows in early December against Victoria, then New South Wales. Crowds are in the thousands wherever the tourists play. The winds changed. It might have taken 60 years since that match at Sandhurst, but there's no doubting something has shifted. J.C. Davis, the long-serving editor of Sydney sporting newspaper The Referee, has this message to his male cricketing companions on the eve of the women's test series. One was astonished to find so many men who are, or have been, cricketers of standing so ignorant on this matter of women's cricket. In Sydney for some few years, women's play, club and interstate, often has been much more interesting to watch than much of the first-grade cricket by the men. The women, in the general sense, reveal greater spirit, enterprise and enthusiasm in their play. And Davis isn't alone. There are other male voices being raised in support of women's cricket. The English team arrives in Brisbane to settle in for their pre-Christmas match against Queensland and begin their preparation for the first test. The Queensland side's been announced. Carly Hansen, Australian and Queensland hockey player and now sports journalist with the Brisbane Courier-Mail, runs her ruler over the selection. She identifies Mabel Crouch as one of several reliable run-getters. She will join her cousin, the slow left-arm bowler Edna, in the team. It's the first time Indigenous women will play an international cricket match. Queensland is at a distinct disadvantage. This will be the first time many of the women have played on turf wickets. Much of cricket is still played on concrete pitches without any matting. Edna takes the new ball when England bats after a typically tropical deluge has delayed the start of the game. She bowls thoughtfully against a team of far more seasoned players. England is dismissed for 181, 
and Edna completes 27 overs and takes five for 25. She gets to keep the ball. When Queensland bats, wickets tumble, but Mabel holds firm. Batting at second wicket down, she top scores and remains not out 29. The next highest score is 12. Queensland is rolled for 57 and manages 83 the second time around, leaving England winners by an innings and 41 runs. Some years later, Edna Crouch marries Ben Archie Newfong, a Queensland heavyweight boxer. Their son, John Newfong, becomes a pioneering Indigenous journalist, editor and activist, becoming the main spokesperson for the Aboriginal tent embassy opposite the original Parliament House in Canberra. John's contribution to journalism in this country is so significant, he's inducted into the Australian Media Hall of Fame. Before the first test match can start, there are several issues to be resolved. The number of balls in the over and the size of the ball itself. Australian women, like the men at the time, play eight balls in an over and use a particular size ball. English women have six ball overs and a smaller ball. The negotiations give each team a win. Australia adopts the six ball over and England agrees to the Australian ball. The three test matches will be scheduled for three days each. There's another debate to resolve, what to wear. Marjorie Pollard's Women's Cricket Association is very firm on what it will tolerate, a definite no to trousers, a rousing yes to long white stockings. The Australians, we know, are more ecumenical. The decision is to have what's known as a divided skirt or collots with a white shirt and white stockings, and those stockings drive Nell McClarty and Peggy Antonio mad. Oh, well, we were really smart. We were about the first team to go into collots. We thought they were all right, but now they're not nearly as nice as the ones they have nowadays. But the thing was, those terrible stockings we had to wear. (laughs) They were lyle and they were long, and we had to wear a suspender belt to keep them up. And Peggy and I couldn't stand them, and we'd take ours and put them on at the last minute before we went out. Oh, it was really terrible. Shall <laughs> we say they would have looked better on a corpse? <laughs> oh, yeah. But otherwise, Nell is pretty happy with things. She's been picked to play in Australia's first Test match. I worked at Henry Bucks and they were thrilled to bits, especially the boss. I'm not sure about my family. I think they got a shock. <laughs> Joining Nell in the Australian Eleven is the 17-year-old leg spinner Peggy Antonio from Port Melbourne. Her family are excited but it creates some stress for the teenager. Oh, thrilled to bits. They thought a lot of, a lot more about it than I did. Uh, it just seemed to be going over my head. Oh, yes, we're going to play cricket for Australia, that's it. But, oh, they were all very keen. Mm. I think it's their keenness that um, took a little bit of the shine of it for me because the pressure became a bit intense and um, I don't like pressure, mm. or I didn't. Nell and Peggy are joined by a solitary Queenslander, Vice-Captain Kath Smith, sisters Essie Chevel and Fernie Blade, and Margaret Peden is captain. Pat Jarrett breaks the story in the Melbourne Herald 10 days out from the test that there are five Victorians in the final squad and the selection is so secretive that Peggy doesn't even know Nell has been picked. It's a team of familiar faces, but they've never played together before and they're playing against a group of women who've spent the past few months in each other's company. 
Margaret Peden wins the toss and chooses to bat on the first day of women's cricket's inaugural test match. Rain has been around, but it's cleared for the start of play. The pitch has been covered and the outfield is slow. Australian openers Hazel Pritchard and Ruby Monaghan walk out to the middle of the Brisbane Exhibition Ground. It's Friday. The crowd is building. Before the end of the day, there will be 3,000 spectators in the ground. There's action early. Pritchard has dropped in the slips off the second ball, but she's out shortly afterwards. And that brings Nell McClarty to the wicket. She takes guard against Myrtle McClagan, who has taken the first wicket. McClagan bowls right arm off breaks, and Nell, facing only her second ball, hits the ball back to the bowler. It's going to be Myrtle's day. In fact, it's actually going to be her tour. And she tears through the Australians to finish with seven wickets for 10 runs. Only local girl Kath Smith resists in making 25. Australia's all out for a humbling 47. England responds with 154, Myrtle makes 72, and skipper Betty Archdale 32. Nell and Peggy get a wicket each, but it's fellow Victorian Anne Palmer who takes seven English wickets with her own slow bowling. Australia goes in again and makes a better fist of it to score 138, with Essie Shevel top scoring with an unbeaten 63. This time the crowd swollen to 5,000. On the final day, England knocks off the required runs with nine wickets in hand. 1-0. England looks the stronger team, united and arguably more skillful. For some cricket fans, England's superiority is the natural order of things. The tour moves to the SCG for the second test match and once again the crowds turn up in numbers and it draws the movie tone cameras to record the happenings. Girls cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people but movie tone's pictures of the English women's team playing in Sydney against the Australians prove conclusively that it can be not only serious but expert as well. Watch the strokes and you will see that they are definitely up to the male standard. Now let's have a look at the Australian batting and the English bowling. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. The fielding is keen. Every girl is on her toes. There's no doubt that the players are feeling the crowd's interest and in all that goes with it. A young Piggy Antonio is a little dazzled, even reflecting on it all years later. Some of the games that were played in the women's cricket, well, they just had huge crowds. There was actual, actually betting on it, and at some of the games there were fights. And it had a bit of a football atmosphere at a women's cricket match. The Sydney test, though, provides little change in the Australian fortunes. Nell drops down the batting order and opens the bowling. Margaret Peden's sister Barbara comes into the team. Australia does much better with the bat than in Brisbane, totalling 162. Then the game is taken away from them when Myrtle McLagan becomes the first woman to hit a test century, as she and her opening partner, Betty Snowball, put on 145 for England's first wicket. It's hard work for the Australian bowlers. They capture only five English wickets before the tourists declare at 301. Nell is wicketless and concedes 77 runs, and Peggy takes two for 53. Battling a big deficit, the Australians manage 148 in their second innings, leaving England just 10 runs to record a match and series win. 
The public conclusion is that women's cricket in England is more mature, perhaps more robust and skillful than the Australian version. There's some truth in that, but it won't remain that way, and in some aspects of the game, Australia appears to be well ahead of England. As part of organising the third and final test in Melbourne, the Victorian Women's Cricket Association writes to the Melbourne Cricket Club for permission to use the ground. It's worth remembering that the Melbourne Cricket Club considers itself something of an antipodean version of the MCC in the old country, and therefore a measured but staunch defender of the status quo. In this instance, though, MCC secretary and former Australian Test Off spinner Hugh Trumbull has no hesitation in agreeing that the MCG can be used for a two-day warm-up game followed by the Test match. It will be another 41 years before the MCC in England will allow women to play at its Lord's headquarters. One of the English players, Grace Morgan, is struck by the ease and access her team has to what is a cornerstone of Australian cricket history. We were shown over the pavilion and introduced to some well-known ex-cricketers and then to lunch. Ponsford, Kelly, Rigg, Fleetwood Smith, Ebling and Hugh Trumbull were there and sat among us being very friendly and afterwards taking us out to the wicket and practice nets and telling us about them. Our dressing room is the same one that Hobbs, Sutcliffe and Co. used when they were over here. And we felt honoured in that we were the first women to be allowed in certain parts of the pavilion, which are regarded practically as hallowed ground. The Australians are quick learners. They're adapting to the standard of competition. On the first day of the Melbourne Test, England's dismissed for 162. Myrtle makes another 50 and Betty 32. But it's Peggy Antonio who makes the difference. She claims six for 49. They're starting to call the Port Melbourne leg spinner the girl Grimmett after the Australian men's leg spinner, Clary Grimmett. Like many English teams over the years, leg spin has a paralysing effect on their batters. Betty Archdale remembers it well. Peggy Antonio, absolute gem. Uh, she bowled googers, as you probably know, and um, she was, you know, the life and soul of the party. She was terrific. She, her bowling was really nasty. We weren't used to this kind of thing at all. Nell has been dropped for Melbourne and the Sydney teenager Amy Hudson opens the batting. Peggy's spin partner Anne Palmer top scores with 39 for Australia. And at the end of the first two innings, England only has a narrow lead of 12 runs. The crowds have remained engaged, several thousand each day. Now they can feel a contest. With the series decided, Betty Archdale makes a sporting declaration and sets Australia 166 to win. It's a generous task, but Australia loses quick wickets and it takes a rearguard action to save the whitewash, with the Peden sisters there at the end. It's a draw, but there's a sense that Australian women's cricket is stirring, building to something better. The Australians understand what the difference has been and what it meant for the next time they play England. Nell puts it like this. We didn't do very well when they played here. The series reveals something more than the standard of cricket. It's the camaraderie of the shared sport, a sense of a game to be played and enjoyed. 
Betty Archdale develops a lifelong fondness for Australia and Australians, and her opponents feel similarly warm towards her. Here's Nell again. Oh, she was absolutely superb. In fact, she was more like an Australian person than an English person. Uh, she fraternised with us and was so friendly and beautiful sense of humour and a great leader. But it's also clear that the two teams are very different, especially as far as Nell and Peggy are concerned. She always say that um, they were educated and we were just working class. Simple as that. Sirs and ladies. And <laughs> Perhaps one of the two's significant triumphs is the effect it has on lowering the temperature of the body line controversy. Although the Australian men returned to England for the 1934 series, there is another summer ashes waiting, and Australian cricket fans in particular have long memories. Raf Nicholson suspects the women's tour played an important bridge-building role, even if the MCC back in London didn't envisage that outcome. No, I don't get the sense that necessarily the MCC viewed it as a helpful diplomatic exercise, but I do think that in practice it probably was, um, because ultimately when you've got the two women's teams playing, they are representatives of their nations, and when you've got all this press coverage, both in England and in Australia, of kind of saying, oh, you know, the teams are getting on well and they're friendly and we're having a nice series without anyone trying to kill each other by, by bowling body line, that does wonders, I think, um, and does probably help to mend some of these relationships. And the English team do meet some um, quite prominent male cricketers while they're out in Australia. Um, so I think that that potentially helps as well. Um, but, but there isn't really any sense that the MCC are kind of conscious of that particularly. Years later, Betty Archdale understood the power of that tour to help cricket rediscover its roots. I think the borderline did us a lot of good, did the women a lot of good. We happened to come out just at the end of the borderline tour and people were so relieved to find that you could still play cricket without trying to kill the other side, you know. Next time on The Maiden Summer, we'll see Australia take on England over there when they show just how far women's cricket has come before the advent of war brings the game's momentum to a sudden halt. This podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. Thanks to Anne Gordon, Karen Hill, Rena Hoare and Mitchell and Raf Nicholson. For further details on sources and resources, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au. Special thanks to the voices of Olivia DeLosantis, Liz Granger, Hilary Lammercraft, Sue Westwood, and Chris Plumridge. And remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>